0: Grab your Bible, if you will. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. I haven't preached in a week, so um, maybe I had a little practice this morning. And because I was gone last Sunday, I didn't get the inside joke that was made during the offering. So I somehow missed something. I don't know what that was about, but it sounded really, really funny. You guys knew what it was, I guess, but I, I wasn't clued into that. Uh, I felt like I missed something. I like I haven't been able to worship this morning because I missed what that was. I'm kidding. Luke chapter 12, uh, we're going to talk about kingdom readiness this morning. I don't know how many fish people are in here, meaning I don't know how many in here like to fish or like to eat fish. But in the Northeast, uh, codfish uh, are not only delightful to have on the dinner table, but they're also a big commercial business. In fact, uh, there's a market for cod, Eastern cod, all over the country, especially in the sections of the nation that are furthest removed from the Northeast coastline. In fact, years ago, Uh, The public demand for cod created a problem for the shippers. And so they began to to freeze the cod to make sure that they had enough time to get them there so they wouldn't spoil. As they froze the cod and began to ship them, they began to realize that that actually um, hurts the taste. It hurts the texture even of the, the fish. And so they came up with an idea that uh, we're going to send them alive in tanks of seawater, but that actually even made it worse, worse than freezing them. Uh, so it, they still lost their flavor, but not only did they lose their flavor, the fillets became soft and mushy. Nobody wants that on the plate when you're eating your fish dinner. So Someone else came up with the idea to solve this problem, and very innovative, I think. They still ship the cod live in a tank of seawater, but they added something to that tank of seawater that kept them fresh, kept them healthy, while they're on their way from the eastern coastline to wherever the market is that they're going to be distributed in. And so the thing that they put in the tank was the natural enemy, or the natural predator, better yet, of the codfish, and that is the catfish. So all the way to the market, these live cod are in the tank. They're swimming around, and they're being chased by their enemy, by their predator, natural in the, war, in the wild. And so it keeps them fresh. It keeps them healthy. In fact, it keeps them, makes them even better than they were before. It keeps them moving and vibrant. It keeps the flavor in the fillets, and the texture is not affected. Today, some of you are sitting here thinking, what in the world is he talking about codfish? It's not, um, this is not the sunny fish fry at Ray Lane Baptist Church. And even when we have a fish fry, it's not cod. Where are you going with this conversation? That's what you're wondering this morning. Here's the caveat. Some of you feel like that codfish swimming around the tank of life and constantly being chased by the predators around you right? You feel like that. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is a struggle. You feel like you've constantly got something or someone on your tail, like the pursuit of material things, the pursuit of worldly things just continue to weigh heavy upon you. They create fear in your life. They create anxiety in your life. This is not how the Lord would have you to live, right? We we don't want to live like that. And as we read the Bible, we know that God does not want us To live like that. Luke chapter 12, verse 22 and 23, Jesus says this Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So Jesus here calls us to change our perspective, to set our height or our sight much higher than they are currently. Fortunately for us, I don't know about you, but I know it's for me, I have a tendency to. To live for lesser things. I have a tendency to to allow my vision to go downward rather than upward. And so, as followers of Jesus Christ, I wonder this morning are we treasuring Jesus Christ? Are we treasuring his kingdom far above anything and everything else in our life? If we are, the promise of Scripture is that. We may be the codfish in the tank, swimming around and being chased, but we still are under the umbrella of God's protection and provision in our lives. That's what we treasure. Jesus has told us in the verses we've read in recent weeks, what we treasure is where our hearts will be. So when we fail to invest in what is eternal, what are we going to do? We're going to reap that which is temporal. We're going to reap that which is fleeting and worrisome. Haddon Robinson, I came across this quote. I love what he wisely said. He says, what worries you masters you. How many this morning on this Father's Day, you feel like you have a taskmaster that is not very friendly in your life? And you're worried about a lot of things. And so that that predator is constantly chasing you around in the tank and you long for something more than what you have. So you have this emotional... um, Reward that comes with material preoccupation and that emotional reward is is a taskmaster. It's something that creates fear and anxiety in your life. But when we treasure Christ, we have no reason to worry. That's what we've seen leading up to where we're at this morning has become to these verses before us in Luke chapter 12. We've seen and we know that Jesus will take care of every need in our life, if we would just fix our eyes upon Him, if we would just trust Him as king and, and live in His kingdom, lest we think that treasure in Christ will remove all of our problems and dangers. What has Jesus told us, or what does Jesus tell us elsewhere in His gospel? We see in John 16:33 that we will experience tribulation in this life, right? Jesus never promises that there will never be a predator in the tank with us. He just tells us that he's with us in the tank. He just tells us that he will walk with us. He will carry us. And he's going to do that from the moment of our salvation all the way through our sanctification as we live in this life. And then he's there with us, welcoming us on the other side into our glorification. So like the codfish that's in the tank, we will have our fair share of catfish chasing after us. The difference is that we have Jesus. The difference is that he's walking with us. He's promising not just to walk with us, but to return. And that's what we see in this text this morning, this kingdom readiness, this, this, this uh, idea that Jesus is the king and he has a kingdom and it's an already here kingdom, but it's also a not yet here kingdom. And that day is coming and we need to be ready when it returns. So today till that day, We're to be ready for his return. This morning, I want us to talk about kingdom readiness, and I want us to see a call to keep our eyes open, our eyes on the horizon. If we want to think about it this way, looking toward the eastern sky when Jesus returns, we need to be ready for that. And when we do so, there's a little thing that comes along with that. Kingdom readiness helps us gives us an antidote to the worry that we have in this life and the natural tendency to be greedy. Last week I was sitting in a hotel room last Sunday morning watching our service online and and I watched Trevor as he took the text and expounded it. So we've already talked about treasuring Christ's kingdom. Now we want to build on that, that, that idea of the kingdom and treasuring it above all things. Now we want to build on it and put our eyes to the future and what that means for us. We want to live today in the kingdom with an eye on eternity, awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 12, let's begin reading in verse 35. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door." To him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 41, Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? In other words, Jesus, uh, you're you're speaking about this, this parable, and it's kind of some cloaked language. It's you know, a little difficult to understand. Is it only for us or is it for everyone? Jesus doesn't really answer his question. He just continues. He says, verse 42, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Interesting set of verses that we're looking at this morning. All of it speaks to the idea of kingdom readiness. As I said a few weeks ago, in this 12th chapter of Luke's gospel, we find five warnings. Four of them are directed to believers. They're directed to the church. They're directed toward those who are God's people. The fifth warning is aimed at those in need of redemption. And so this morning, as we look at these verses, Jesus is speaking to those who are believers primarily. He's speaking to those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking to those who are in the family of God, who are members of the kingdom, servants within the kingdom. And he's calling us to be ready for the king's return, to be ready for his return. So far, we've been warned of the dangers of hypocrisy here in chapter 12. We've been warned last week of the danger of covetousness. Today in this Set of verses, we discover this third warning, which we might refer to as carelessness or worrisome that comes along with just a careless, haphazard approach to the kingdom of God. Jesus here shifts the emphasis from being worried about the present to being watchful about the future. How many of us in our Christian lives on a daily basis think about Jesus' return? How many times do you get up in the morning and you go throughout your day and you really put a a focus of your attention on the fact that Jesus will return? That the king will come back? We probably don't think about it near as much as we ought to. Do you think if we spent more time focusing on Jesus' return and and the fact that we'll stand before him one day and give an account of our lives and and he will make judgment upon what we've done with his life that he's imputed into us, his righteousness that he's imputed into our life, do you think that that would make a difference in how we live if we focused our attention a little bit more to that day? Having an eye on eternity and not just what's right in front of us? I believe it would. See, I believe one of the best ways to conquer the danger of hypocrisy and the entrapment of covetousness and the worry that comes with just living life, looking here at the temporal, one of the ways to to combat that is to look at the future, to be reminded the fact that the king is returning. And so these themes that we see in this chapter all work together, calls us this morning to live in the future tense. It's difficult for the things of the world to ensnare us if we're living in the future tense, that I am living for that place, not this, this place. In other words, I'm a pilgrim here in this life, and I'm moving, I'm sojourning here, I'm moving through this era, through this transitioning place here on earth to my real home, which was with the Lord in heaven. And at the very end of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. But this is not my home. My home is with the king. Jesus here is calling us to kingdom readiness. And I want to point out three things that I believe it's important for us to see out of these verses this morning. The first thing I want us to look at are the characteristics of kingdom readiness. What does kingdom readiness look like? What are the characteristics of that? I want you to listen to this quote that I came across This week, Arnold Olson says this about uh, this perspective. He says, Ever since the first days of the Christian church, so all the way back to the early days of the New Testament, evangelicals, he says, have been looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says they may have disagreed as to its timing and to the events on the eschatological calendar, they have differed as to a pre-tribulation or a post-tribulation rapture, the pre- or post- or non-millennial coming of Jesus. They may have been divided as to a literal rebirth of Israel. However, he says, all are agreed that the final solution to the problems of this world is in the hands of the king of kings who will someday make the kings of this world his very own. I don't know if you understood what he was talking about there. I hope that you did. But in the Christian church... Cross denominations, we have varying opinions about how the kingdom will be ushered in, how the king will return, right? He mentions pre tribulation, post tribulation. There's a mid trib perspective. He talks about premillennial coming of Jesus, post millennial, uh, non millennial, which is amillennial. There's all these different perspectives, and we're not going to get into any of that this morning. That's not the focus of this text. But what he's saying here is this we all are agreed throughout Christendom that Jesus. Jesus will return, right? And we live for that day. We're confident of that day because that's the day when all things that are evil, all unrighteousness will be put down and the king will reign supremely. That ought to get an amen there. The reason there's such strong agreement regarding the return of Jesus It's not because we fabricated this. It's not because early church fathers came up with this idea and and passed it along. No, we are agreed on this. We are firm in this conviction because the Word of God is so firm. You see, if we were to look through the New Testament, just the New Testament this morning, you would see over 318 mentions of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All throughout the 260 chapters in the New Testament, it's mentioned 318 times at least. In fact, every book in the New Testament, with the exception of Galatians and those two short epistles, 2 John and 3 John, say something about the return of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? That means that it's a big deal to the Lord who's given it to us through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it ought to be a big deal for us as the local church. It ought to be a big deal to us as believers that we understand we have a king who has a kingdom, and the king is coming back with his kingdom, and we're part of that. Kingdom readiness. So there's some characteristics about kingdom readiness. Two of them I want you to see this morning. First of all, there's engagement in the king's work. He says in verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Jesus here uses the image of a Hebrew wedding to portray kingdom readiness in these verses that follow. In the Jewish wedding uh, ceremony, there was many things that would happen. In the wedding ceremony, the whole Ordeal would not just happen on an afternoon. Pastor Nate here is getting married on Friday, and um, he has been waiting for this day. Um, We were just talking about this. We men, when we get married, we go through the same thing, right? The wedding's really not about the man in American culture. It's about the bride. The bride, and maybe rightly so, but the bride comes in from the back. We all stand for her, and we look at her. Our, we fix our attention on her, and she's beautiful. And we are just enamored with the bride as she's coming. That's not the way of the Jewish culture. We also, in our American weddings, we usually sum it up in, what, four, five, six hours at the most. It's a one-day deal. For most people, it's a two-day deal for the people in the wedding party, right? You've got the rehearsal dinner, and you've got the rehearsal, and you've got all the things that happen on the day before, and then you've got the date of, and all the things that go along with that. But for the guests, like I'll be a guest Friday, I'm just there for a couple hours. I'm there to say, amen, congratulations, where's the food? And I get to leave, right? In the Jewish culture, this was a wedding ceremony that would have taken place over a number of days. In fact, it was not a set day or set number of days. And so the servants didn't know exactly when the master would come back home for them. And so he tells them here, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now, in the Greek New Testament, if we were to look up this phrase that's translated stay dressed for action in the ESV, the literal reading of that is let your loins stay girded. Now, does anybody know what that means? Let your loins stay girded? A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, tells us that back in that culture, you know, they're wearing long robes, they wearing long uh, draping type of clothing, and if you were to try to run or move quickly in that, you're going to trip and fall. And so they would wear a girdle, something that would tie up the robe so that they could move quicker and to be ready for service. And so that's what Jesus here is calling them to do. To remain dressed for action, keep their lamps burning so that we can see to work. expresses the second characteristic, not only engagement in the king's work, but to be expectant of the king's return. We look at verse 36. We see that it presents a lovely scene as this returning Lord is greeted by faithful servants who were awaiting his return. So, Read verse 36, and you see there there is a determination of expectation. Like they are determined to be on the lookout, to be aware of the king's or the Lord's arrival. So they're looking, they're waiting, they're watching for his return, not knowing when it's coming, but expecting it at any moment. So they remained awake, they remained alert, they remained engaged. Why? Because they were expectant. Rather than giving in to the fatigue and the attitudes that come with being tired, they kept a bright house. They kept bare legs. They're girded up, ready for action so that they can spring up and serve their Lord, their Lord with a joyous reception. I find that marveling. I don't know about you, but I'm not a night person. Any night people in here? Like you do your best work at 11 p.m., 12 p.m. at night. You guys are crazy. <laughs> Maybe evil, Right? Nothing good happens after a certain time of night. That's what my mom always told me. So I go to bed early. I want to make stay clear of all the evil in my life. I may get up super early. I get up way before daylight, but I want to go to bed fairly early, you know, 10 o'clocks usually when I go to bed, but I've already fallen asleep on the couch an hour or longer before that, right? That's, I'm old man. I got an old man syndrome. And so I, I read this text and I'm thinking, man, how could these people stay up? Because I'm not a night person. I don't function well after I get tired. Like that's when I get cranky. Some of you, like my wife is a night person. I go to bed and I'm telling her, babe, can you like pull your TV volume down a little bit? Um, I need to go to sleep, which you know I usually hit my head on the pillow and I'm out no matter what. So, but I still have to say that. She can stay up all hours of the night, but if she doesn't have to go somewhere, and I could talk if she's not here, right? <laughs> None of you guys will say any of the things that I'm gonna say. Right? Okay, thank you. Pastor congregation confidentiality here. <laughs> but like on a Saturday morning, if we don't have to go somewhere, she tells us, I'm sleeping until nine, don't even think about waking me up. right? Because if you do, mama bear's not really nice. I'm kind of the opposite. If you start banging on something or wake me up in an you know, hour or so after I've woken or went to sleep, I am, uh, I'm not real friendly. You know, the Holy Spirit's kind of subsided in me at that point, or I have locked him in a closet at that moment in my life. I'm not sure. But so these men here, the way Jesus presents it, they they may be tired, but they're not giving in to that. They're remaining alert. They're remaining engaged. Why? Because there's a strong expectation. My Lord may come. My Lord may arrive. So they're waiting for him. We're to wait as well. We're to be expectant. This is not a passive, this is not a lethargic wait, but it's one that's filled with active service. It's one that's filled with a continual preparation in our lives. It's one that's filled with a joyous anticipation that Jesus is coming and Jesus may come today. Jesus calls us to this readiness. Listen to what he says in Matthew 24, verse 14. He says, in this gospel of the kingdom, Will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the characteristic of kingdom readiness involves this engagement in the work, which has with it an expectation of the king's return. and it's a beautiful scene of blessing which brings us to the second thing I want us to see: blessings of kingdom readiness. The parable of Jesus tells, takes an unexpected twist in verse 37, or at least from my perspective. It makes sense that the Lord of the house, when he returns, that the servants would come to him and to serve him, right? It makes sense to me as I read it, that they would remain engaged, that they would remain expectant. What doesn't make sense to me as I read this parable is that when the Lord gets there, he's overwhelmed with how faithful his servants are But he doesn't sit at the table for them to serve him. He has them sit at the table, and he serves them. Did you expect that as you read through the text? That the Lord would actually turn the tables around and serve the servants? But that's what happens here. He blesses them. And I want you to see two aspects of this blessing. First of all, they are served by the king. Rather than sitting down and being served, he sets them down and serves them. He has them recline at the table, and he does exactly what we see in verse 35. He girds his loins, he hikes up his robe, and he serves the food. He's getting the dishes out, he's fixing the food, he's bringing them drinks, and all the while, as they're seated around this table reclining, and the Lord is serving them, there's joyous conversation, there's all the things you'd expect in that type of setting. And how is it happening? The Lord is the one doing the serving. The Lord does that. Now, does that remind us of anything else that we see in Scripture? Sounds like the marriage supper of the Lamb to me. Sounds like the end times when we get to enjoy this with the Lord. And so before we go there in totality this morning, I want you to think about this image. Can we grasp what we're seeing here that the Lord serves his servants? I believe it's a difficult image for us to really grasp One of the reasons I believe it's difficult for us to grasp is our failure to to understand that Jesus is indeed our King. And not just our King, but that He would serve us. See, we we have a hard time grasping it. Why would a king stoop to that level? I I don't know about you, but when when the king, the new king of England was, or the UK, was crowned last month, uh, that was a Saturday morning. I was up early. I was Uh, working on a a Sunday message, and so I wasn't, I didn't have the volume up, but I had it on the TV, and so as I was working that morning morning for a number of hours, I would just glance up and see and watch all of the different things that went into that whole ceremony of the crowning of the king or the official, uh, I forget what they call it because I'm not British, but the um, coronation of the king, that's what they call it. And it was a beautiful thing just to to see something like that happen. It's so foreign to us, literally foreign to us in our culture. So as we think about this, it's hard for us to grasp how the king would ever serve the help. Perhaps the greater failure to comprehend on our part is due to our pride. We cloak it in humility, but... When it comes down to it, we don't want to be served by the king. We don't want to be helped by the king. We want to help ourselves, right? We want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but we can't do that in salvation. We can't do that in any aspect of our spiritual life. God has to serve us. Isn't that what the cross is all about? That Jesus would take our sin upon himself. He who knew no sin, what? Became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Paul says. So when Jesus goes to the cross 2,000 years ago, and he dies there as the sacrificial lamb of God on behalf of the sinful people of all all time, the whole world, he's serving you and I. We want to do that ourselves. We want to be found righteous in our own right. And yet that's not the case at all. Jesus demonstrated this. There was a beautiful picture of humility and a beautiful picture of service that took place in the upper room in Jerusalem as Jesus took that girdle, wrapped it around his waist, got down on his hands and knees, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. If you read that story there in John chapter 13, the first 17 verses, uh, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and he comes to Peter's feet. And Peter says, no, Lord, you cannot, you will not wash my feet. And if you know the story, what does Jesus say to Peter? If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And Peter responds, not just my feet, but my head also. Right? He wants all of that. But initially he's saying, Lord, no, Lord, you cannot and you will not do that. So in his In his humanity, he expresses an element of humility, but it's undergirded with pride. Lord, you cannot do that. I've got to do something for myself. But what Jesus is saying there is, you can't do anything for you, but I have to serve you. That's the blessing that we see in this kingdom readiness, is that Jesus, the Lord God himself, the King of kings, will serve his people. He serves us in salvation. One day he will serve us around the marriage supper of the Lamb. There as we see people from east and west, from north and south, all tribes, all tongues, all nations gathering around the throne of God. There at that beautiful feast, they will be served by the King of Kings. There's a second blessing, that, we, that is we'll, we will be rewarded by the King. Verses 42 through 44, we see that Jesus explains that he will reward those who are ready. He's going to reward those who are faithful and wise. What is this reward? Well, the easiest way to to explain it is to simply say that the servant of Christ, who has been faithful in his or her temporary earthly responsibilities, will be rewarded upon Christ's return with permanent authority. That's the simplest way to take verses 42 through 44 and make sense of it is that Jesus is going to take your faithfulness here and reward it for eternity in a permanent way, right? There's reward there. That we are faithful with little, we're going to be made over more. We're going to be given much. There are clear characteristics of the kingdom, which will be blessed by God. But we also discover a third thing I want you to see, and that is some warnings about kingdom readiness. We all have the propensity to forget. We all have the natural tendency to drift. I mentioned earlier that we were at the Southern Baptist Convention this past week for our annual meeting. I try to go annually. And what I've noticed, and and I've had conversations with this, I've been wondering, is there a drift toward liberalism ever so slightly within our convention? Now, I'm not... I'm not assured. I'm not confident that there isn't. I am confident that we've taken a step, saying, "This is what we believe," and, and it is a, a a strong commitment to the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. So I'm not saying we don't believe the gospel. In fact, I say we do believe the gospel. But I, here's what I know about humanity: we will always drift. And you don't drift toward the Lord; you drift away from the Lord. Staying in a home yesterday. Um, I was knocking doors and doing things like that, getting signatures for my other life. And uh, I was in a conversation. I don't even remember who it was or what house it was. I just remember being in conversation and questions were being asked because they knew you know, my role here. And so we were talking about our convention and, uh, and where we're at. And I just made the statement that we all have a tendency to drift. And we got into the conversation of the conservative resurgence. Some of you are new to Southern Baptist life. You have no idea what that means. Here's what it is in a nutshell. Prior to about 1979, Southern Baptist Convention was full bore liberal. Like we were on the same trajectory of mainline Protestants within our country, discounting the very basic tenets of the faith. But thankfully, by God's grace, we had leaders that that rallied the the, the faithful within our convention, and we took hold of our convention, and we moved back to the Bible. But we didn't just do that because we fell into that. We did that because we were intentional, saying that direction we're on, that path that we're on, that drift we're on, is not leading us to the Lord. It's leading us away from the Lord, and we got to turn and go the other way. We have the natural tendency to drift and to be forgetful. Luke here presents this first extensive teaching on the return of Christ as a way to help curb this tendency to drift. So he gives us two uh, two warnings here that I want to offer to you this morning. First of all, this, the king's return will be a surprise. Surprise is expressed in verses 39 and 40 and again in verse 46. Jesus' purpose here is to call us as believers to readiness, right? He's saying the king's going to return. The, the master is going to return. It's going to be a surprise. He understands that readiness brings about progress. It brings about expansion. It brings about enrichment. On the other hand, when the servant no longer believes that the king's going to return, that the master is going to return, or at least he may not return soon, what happens? The person's life is going to deteriorate. The person's life is going to weaken. Right? Look at verse 45. That's what we see there. He says, But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming. Begins to beat the male and the female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. What happens? The master returns. Verse forty-six. And so this man sees that my master hasn't been very prompt on his return. He's delayed. Rather than saying, "Let's be vigilant in our readiness," he says, "Let's just live wherever, however we want to." He's going to beat the male and the female servants. He's going to eat, drink, and be merry. He's going to just allow himself to give in to the indulgences of life. And so Jesus's message here is this. The king will return and he's going to be a surprise to you. Why? Because you're not expecting it. This morning, I want you to think about how long Jesus has tarried his return. Go back to the early days of the New Testament, the early days of the early church. You think about when Jesus was crucified and buried and resurrected and ascended to the Father. How long has it been since that day? 2,000 or so years. When will Jesus return? I don't know. I don't know. could be tomorrow. could be the next day. could be next year. could be 2,000 years from now. We don't know the day, but what do we know? We know he will return. Right, How long has it been since you followed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? For me, it's been 26 years and a couple months. Has your perspective on the return of Christ changed the further you've gotten away from that initial day of salvation? In other words, when you were... An early young believer were you very expectant of the Lord's return in your life and you lived in light of that. You wanted to be found faithful because you were sure that he's coming. But now, since it's been 10 years or 20 years or 40 years, is your life looser because he's delayed his return? Jesus says, be warned. Jesus, the king, will return and it will be a surprise. There's a th- second warning. The king's return will bring judgment Look there in verse 46. Jesus says, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, that doesn't sound very nice. Have you ever cut somebody in pieces? Please say no. (laughs) Unless it's an accident. Sounds like judgment to me. Verse 47. The servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he's going to receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. Justice will be served. That's what Jesus is saying here. It will be severe, but it's going to be fair. We hear the word equitable all the time in today's culture. Here's what I want you to know about what Jesus is saying here. The judgment of God will be equitable. It's going to be fair. It's going to be just. It's going to be for every single person. Anyone who's denied Christ will be judged. Every one of us who are in Christ, we too will be judged according to the righteous living of our lives. Justice will be served when the king returns. When he ushers in his kingdom, he will judge people rightly. Those who possessed a greater knowledge of God but rejected his lordship will receive a greater punishment. Those out of ignorance who rejected the Lord will receive a weaker punishment, but all will be judged and will be equally justly punished. That ought to give us good news. It ought to give us good news that God is just, that God is fair, that God is good. Today, for us, we must must allow God's word to remind ourselves that the king is indeed returning, and his appearance will be a surprise, meaning we don't know when it will take place, but we know it will take place. We're sure of his return. We must allow the Bible to remind ourselves of this judgment that is coming upon us. We dare not grow weary in our waiting, but instead, let's strive to be ready. Let's strive to receive the blessing that he promises to us in these verses. What's your relationship with the Lord like this morning? How's your walk with the Lord? Do you have a desire to walk holy and faithfully before him? If so, you experience your fair share of hardships. I want you to know that this morning. The, the word of God contains no prosperity gospel. In other words, the Word of God does not tell us that if you faith into Jesus and you strive to live holy or you do certain things, that it's this grand exchange that if you give yourself to the Lord, then he's going to promise all these good things for you and to you. Now, he's going to be good to you, but it doesn't mean your life's going to be easy. I've shared with the church before uh, the bishop of Ephesus, Bishop Polycarp, 1st century, 2nd century A.D., Uh, was a faithful man. I think he's like 84, 86 years old when he was burned at the stake. And he was told, if you will recant your faith, we won't burn you at the stake. And he just said basically this, God over these years has been faithful to me. How could I ever deny him now? He went up in a ball of smoke. Burned at the stake. Man, I want to live faithful like that. I want to live holy like that. I want to be expectant of the Lord's return, expectant of the blessings and the rewards that he's going to give us. Life is not easy, but there's a reward waiting us. Humanly speaking, we wish life could be different. We wish that it could be easier, but it cannot. Because this world is set against God and His kingdom. Here's what I know about the culture in which we're living today. If you are following Jesus and you're going to continue to follow Jesus, it's not going to get easier for you. It's going to get harder. And that should be good news for us. I'm old enough to to have experienced the back end of a cultural Christianity in America where it was culturally the norm to go to church, at least in the southern part of the U.S., That is no longer. You're the outcast. You're the outcast. If we were together, all the Christians, and and let's be honest, everyone who darkens the door of a church on a Sunday morning is not a Christian. Not every one of us. Thankfully, we are still inviting people who need to know Christ into our fellowships and into our worship services. But let's just say everyone was in our county today. That would be a small minority of believers in a county that has 31,000 plus people so we are the minority. We are the exception. And so we need to understand if we're going to be serious about our relationship with Jesus Christ, it will not mean that things will get easier for us. It will get harder. The chaos that we see in society, that's only going to increase. What does that mean for us? You remember those fish, those codfish in the tank? Remember how... They, they tried to freeze them and ship them, but it lost their flavor. They said, let's put them alive in tanks of seawater and let's ship them. But that still changed the flavor. It even changed the texture of the meat. Why? I guess because they were lazy in the tanks. I don't know. I don't understand the anatomy of fish. That's the only thing I can think of. But they put the catfish in there and it kept them moving. It kept them going. Why? Because they're swimming for their lives. That's where we are in this culture today. We're swimming for our lives. But it's good for us. It's good for us. It keeps us spiritually strong. It keeps us vibrant in our faith, it keeps us fit. So like codfish, we're being chased all the way to the market. The tribulation that we're experiencing is doing that. It's, it's giving us stronger spiritual muscles. It's deepening our kingdom resolve. And it's expanding our kingdom engagement. Because as people see you live differently than them, it gives you opportunities you've never had before to talk about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, why do you live the way you do? Why do you believe that way? You're crazy to believe that way. How could you ever think that? That is so archaic. You ever heard things like that? If you have it, You will. If you take a stance for biblical truth in this culture, you're an anathemy, which is a good place to be. Because you have an opportunity to stand there, not in self-righteousness, not in a holier-than-thou, look-at-me, I'm-better-than-you attitude, but humbly and with gospel charity say, you know what? Jesus has changed my life. He's given me a better way to live it. And you can share the gospel with them. All the while, Knowing Jesus is returning. Kingdom readiness. This morning, I don't know where you're at in your faith. I don't know what's going on in your life. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope you're living for someone and something that's far greater than anything this world can offer. And that is Jesus and his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God, is what Jesus said. Today, you may not be a follower of Jesus Christ. I mentioned that earlier. I, I'm not naive enough to think that everyone sitting in this room is a follower of Jesus Christ or everyone who's watching this online today. I was in church for many years before I faithed into Jesus Christ. April 24th, 1997, I was a freshman at the University of Arkansas. I was in church three times a week at least for a number of years before I ever said yes to Jesus. This morning, you may be sitting here and that's exactly where you are. This is exactly the need in your life that you need to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have a time of response. I would ask you, if you need to know Christ this morning, you'd say yes to him. I would encourage you to come forward. You say, does that mean I'm saved by coming forward? No, not at all. Not at all, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And we can get you with someone who can take you and just sit down with you for a few minutes and walk through the gospel. Or in those few minutes, set up a time later this week to talk through the gospel so that you can put feet to the faith that God's birthing in your heart and in your life. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us to respond to His word. Father, this morning we are grateful. Of your love, we're grateful of your goodness toward us. Lord, the beautiful picture in this parable that Jesus tells is that of a king, a, a Lord, a, a master who is gracious and benevolent toward his subjects. And that is exactly what you are to us. We thank you that you've served us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who served us in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You serve us in the promise of his soon return. You've served us in the promise and the gift of the Holy Spirit that those who have faith into Jesus who have been given the, the blessing and the indwelling of the Spirit of God within us to lead us and to guide us in, into all truth. Father, our prayer this morning is, as believers, you'd help us to keep an eye on the sky, an awareness that our King will one day return. And that we would live in light of that. We would live in light of the eternity that awaits us. May it urge us to engage in gospel work. Sharing our faith with others and our families and our communities and our workplaces and our schools. Father, I pray that it would urge us to live lives that are holy and righteous before you, pleasing before you, that we would not Allow ourselves to drift away from those things. Father, I pray for those that need a relationship with Jesus Christ, that, Lord, they would hear today that there is a king, and that king loves them, and that king has done everything to bring them into relationship with God the Father, and that also that king will return and with it bring a judgment. So there's a need for preparation. Lord, this time is yours. We offer ourselves to you. Help us to respond in faith, in repentance, and in obedience. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.